0: Julian Rushbrook, your host for a History Most Queer. I hope all of you are having a wonderful History Hump Day and that hopefully the seasons will soon be changing. I like the heat of summer, but lately it has me rethinking my love at this time of year. Today we'll be taking less of a dive and more of a few fun dips into nearly three centuries of history with this particular episode. There will be connections to events and attitudes that are very much in the current zeitgeist. Specifically, ideas and attitudes that underpin a great deal of the anxiety and hatred that is directed toward the LGBTQIA community. These ideas are often not so much novel, but rather old ideas that have been dressed up in newer clothes. One of the things that we see time and again over the past two centuries, if not even further back, is that scientific principles are often warped by certain elements in society to justify bigotry. Likewise, concepts regarding gender norms are often woven up tightly with biological concepts. Anytime you hear someone asking the question, what is a woman, we'll see a clear example of gender and sex being viewed as indistinguishable one from the other. These are very old tactics, older even than the concept of science as we know it today. Science is just a new tool in the bigot's kit, along with religious scriptures that were and still are used as bludgeons to battle against groups of people that do not fit into the very worldview that they claim everyone must fit. There are two sexes or genders, and neither the twain shall meet and mix. Like oil and water, they may float one atop the other, but there's no way that water can be a bit oily, or oil a bit watery. Inherent in these ideas is a system whereby there is a definite hierarchy of persons. At the very top is the pinnacle of human perfection, upper crust as it were. Those closest to them must be protected from the dregs of society at the bottom. Think of the women and children as a statement that will be bandied about. In the United States in 1865, when the Ku Klux Klan was formed, one of the primary arguments for the organization to exist was due to the threat that freedmen, former slaves, posed to white women. Even into the 20th century, the image of the savage, uncontrollable sexual desires of black men were on full display in the first blockbuster film, The Birth of a Nation. These ideas regarding inherent, Behavioral traits in black men was by that time seen, by many, as settled science. The pseudoscience of phrenology claimed that physical features were indicative of a whole variety of personality and character traits. With a framework that seemed scientific, it was rather convenient. The evidence seemed to support the conclusion that had already been decided on ahead of time. White, straight, cisgender men of a certain economic class were considered the end point of evolution this was followed closely by white women and then everyone else on earth fits somewhere in a continuum that made it easier for those above a certain group to easily justify inhumanity towards those they were ostensibly beneath them now phrenology is a late 18th century concept but with the publication of Charles Darwin's earth-shattering book on the origin of species, there was now another way in which people who were bigoted could view their place in the world. There was a danger to the pinnacle of evolution. Now, depending on when and where you were, that danger would do quite a bit of hopping about. As I mentioned before, after the end of the American Civil War, southern white men formed the KKK to terrorize people who had been formerly enslaved, ensuring that these people still remained under the thumbs of those who had previously kept them in bondage. All to protect the hierarchy that had white folks on the top. The fear of race mixing started to become combined with the idea of racial purification, just like with roses, cattle, or any other life forms that had become domesticated by humanity. Traits could be selected for in the breeding process to be more desirable. So was born the concept of eugenics. It would be one of the 20th century's most horrific concepts. In the United States, initiatives were put into place that did their best to discourage certain groups of people from having children. Whether due to racial identities or mental illness, people were sterilized to prevent their genes from being passed on to another generation. Recent news stories over the past few years have shed light on the Indian boarding schools in the United States and Canada and their efforts to eliminate the native cultures of the children that were forced to attend them. Not only was the desire at the time to ensure that these people were eventually bred out of existence, but that the aspects of their culture that were seen as inferior likewise be erased. This was done by the banning of children's native languages, as well as the repression of cultural norms. Some of these societies had the concept of the two-spirit person. These are people who do not fit neatly into the Western European concept of the gender binary. Since these people did not match up with the alleged norms for their sex and gender that were thought to be biologically necessary to ensure the perfection of the race or species, and their uniqueness had to be snuffed out again it was all in the name of protecting the race strengthening the nation and a whole other list of reasons that are all really just patent bigotry race had been sexualized in a variety of ways for centuries before the eugenics movement came on the scene but it makes sense that these ideas that in many ways date back to the late medieval period and early renaissance would over time adapt and find a way to exist in a world that demanded a scientific understanding of all things in the cosmos. With white men and women, yet just those two genders and that one race, at the pinnacle of human achievement, it should come as no surprise that Native American men or Asian women or black men, for instance, would in some degree be sexualized in such a way that would put them at odds with the ideals of the eugenics movement. In the late 19th and early 20th centuries, one of the greatest examples of manliness in the United States was that of Theodore Roosevelt. As a child, he had been sickly, and through a variety of means, from weight training and other types of physical fitness, he believed that he had overcome weakness. His adventurous life was a model of masculinity. His whiteness and heterosexuality were inseparable from that. Anyone who did not measure up were seen as inverted in some fashion. Women who took on too many of these ideal masculine virtues were viewed with suspicion. Despite him being a progressive and ushering in sweeping progressive changes to American society, he and others like him were still clinging to notions of racial and sexual superiority that are absolutely heinous these white progressives saw no contradiction in wanting better working hours and so on, as well as limiting job opportunities to women and people of color. Segregation and forced sterilization of undesirable people did not bother them a bit. For them, progress demanded purging the society of those that did not live up to their standards. Many progressive voices today, while advocating for racial equity, free university, or universal healthcare, for instance, can at the same time endorse a hierarchy where trans people may find themselves either at the bottom of the list, or not even included on the list to begin with. I'm looking at you, J.K. Rowling, Dave Chappelle, among others. Despite many of these prominent voices for progress, they sometimes fall short due to viewing certain other folks as defective or undeserving of human dignity. Many of the earliest examples of people that we might today consider trans that were seen as negative were often of non-white people. Now you may remember that a few weeks ago we had a look at the life of the Chevalier Dion, who was a white trans woman. The narrative that is typically associated with her is that she is a heroic French man, who used cross-dressing as a means to protect France. Most contemporary sources still refer to her as the man. This would be the case with black and brown people, but patriotism is not a virtue that is often attached to these trans people. The man-monster, a horrible title, was given to Mary Jones. In 1836, she was hired by a white mason, Robert Hazlum, for the purpose of having sex. As is so often the case, many trans women would be pushed into the sex industry, especially black trans women like Mary Jones, due to unequal working conditions. While she rarely engaged in prostitution, preferring instead to cook, clean, and do other domestic tasks at the brothel that she worked for, It did occasionally happen that a client would greatly desire her companionship over the other people working there. Mary would find herself in trouble with the law, as Robert Hazlund would claim that she had stolen his wallet. Now, whether that happened or not, the end result would find her being processed into the criminal justice system of the state of New York. It was quickly discovered that Mary Jones' birth name was Peter Suley. The media exploded with the story of this man monster. She was mocked due to her appearance in court, where she wore the very garments that she had in her interactions with Robert Hazelin. Images of her in a white gown with blue flowers, her ornately coiffed wig decorated with a gold comb were seen all over the city, and for that matter, the country. In court, she was asked why it was that she, a man, wore dresses and other articles associated with women. And she replied, I've been in the practice of waiting upon girls of ill fame, and they induced me to dress in women's clothes, saying I looked so much better in them, and I've always attended parties among the people of my own color dressed in this way, and in New Orleans I always dressed this way. She would be found guilty and sent to Sing Sing prison for five years. The press enjoyed publishing lurid details of the sexual acts that she and clients of hers engaged in. The details meant to both titillate and disgust. How much of this derision can be chalked up to her having been a sex worker is debatable. There were white trans women trading in sex on the streets of New York, but they were not often written about as being men monsters. Her blackness is really the only thing that could be pointed to as being what so transfixed the minds of the greater populace. Not only had she engaged in an interracial dalliance, but she was, by default, according to the stereotypes circulating at the time, hypersexual due to her blackness. That fear of black sexuality was one of the founding reasons again that the KKK ever began gendered characteristics had to conform to white Anglo-Saxon standards so when we see boys in the Indian boarding schools their hair would be cut to match European styles of the period because having longer hair was seen as feminine some of the first Chinese people to come to the United States did so to work on the construction of the transcontinental railroad like black and native people they too would be sexualized due to cultural traits. Most of these Chinese workers were men, so it would not take long for the greater society to see them as feminine due to their native hairstyles and clothing styles, but also due to their only being men of their country being about. Rarely at this time did Chinese women come to the United States. So, were all of these Chinese men homosexual? Of course not, but there was a heavy implication there that in fact they were. Chinese men were viewed as hypersexual and also not sexual at the same time. There does not have to be any real consistency to these ideas since the end result is to dehumanize people anyway. Chinese women would later be stereotyped as dragon ladies, seductresses under whose sexual powers. A good white man could hardly defend himself. Likewise, Asian women would be seen as demure and innocent. Again, contradiction is not a bug in this system. It's a feature of bigotry. With these types of ideas floating about, it should come as no surprise that the various state and local ordinances would target people who were predominantly non-white for sterilization and other eugenicist policies. Now, at the time, many people of South and Eastern European descent might not have fallen under the umbrella term of whiteness that they do today. Queer people might often find themselves sterilized by the state as well. In England, it was often a choice between hard prison sentences or chemical castration. The reason was twofold, as these drugs would often diminish the sex drive of the person being given them. But also would affect fertility. In case this person did conform, conform to the norms, it would not do to have their tainted genes passed down. Interestingly, many contemporary anti-trans ideas that have been banded about have latched onto the history of the eugenics movement, claiming that giving children hormone blockers or other forms of hormone replacement therapy, is akin to sterilizing an unwanted segment of the population. Words like holocaust get thrown around as well, with those who espouse these notions having little, if any, understanding of the actual genocides that were perpetuated in the name of building a quote-unquote better society. Even today in the United States, Japan, and other countries, many trans folk find themselves having to be sterilized if they want to have their gender identity to be legally recognized. Now, it should be stated that undergoing gender-affirming bottom surgery in conjunction with hormone therapies will sterilize someone who undergoes them. However, not every person who identifies as transgender goes through all of these procedures. Forcing them to do so is an awful echo of these societal purification tactics that were openly practiced until quite recently. This is why doctors and psychologists have very frank conversations with people who are wishing to look into undergoing these procedures. This is not an issue of forcing the people to undergo these procedures, but allowing them to be informed about what they're consenting to having done. If we go back a few decades, we can also see a form of passive eugenicist genocide as regards the HIV-AIDS pandemic. Politicians, doctors, and pastors were trotted out in front of cameras to say that the gays did it to themselves, or that it was God's judgment while likewise dragging their feet to try to come up with effective medical interventions. Millions of people have died since the early 1980s due to HIV. Even today, governments around the world turn a blind eye to HIV-AIDS as it is not seen as a problem, but rather a solution to a problem. Now, the most famous practitioners of eugenics-inspired social engineering is, of course, the Nazi Party of Germany during the 1930s and 40s. In many ways, it can be almost cliché painting them as the biggest baddies that ever goose-stepped across the face of the earth. Some historians may even argue that Stalin's Soviet Union or Pol Pot's Cambodia should be considered for holding the title of the 20th century's worst mass-murdering regimes. They have some points, but I think there are other ways that we can look at this and things to consider when we are talking about the Nazis the state policy that was designed by them took the ideas of forced sterilization or segregation to a level of industrial efficiency that were unprecedented in recorded history. Sure, careers had been attacked and murdered throughout history all over the globe, but never in such a systematic way. Jews have, for centuries of history, been expelled from nations or had whole communities wiped out in pogroms. never before had such a precise method of tracking down and hurting people t- to their deaths based on their ethnicity been devised before. The German fascists were not acting in a vacuum. As I just mentioned, Jews have been victims of atrocities all over the globe for centuries. German history has many of these a- across the centuries. Martin Luther, the veritable father of the Protestant movement, was a pretty strident anti-Semite. With all of that culture of hatred and distrust, it makes sense that genocide would be the natural evolution of eugenics in that society. They did not get their ideas from thin air either. The eugenics policies of the United States and the British Empire, from the reservation systems in America and South Africa to forced sterilization of queer people racial undesirables and the mentally ill were common practices in both. Despite these two powers siding against the Third Reich in World War II, the commonalities could make anyone queasy upon consideration. Interestingly enough, queerness was, as the word suggests, a little queer in that it was difficult to grapple with when looking at things from a eugenicist viewpoint. Were the phenomena of same-sex attraction or gender nonconformity inherent in the genes? Or were these occurrences a product of socialization? It always comes back to that nature versus nurture argument. For those who viewed anything outside of the heteronormative box as a product of either one of these categories, in the end, aspects of racial inferiority were nonetheless applied. And in Marxist circles, trans and homosexual traits were viewed as end products of a corrupt and decadent late-stage capitalism. Sex between two women, or a woman that was assigned male at birth, were looked upon with the same level of class warfare-based disgust and criticism as would be directed to people who drink champagne with diamonds dropped into their glasses. It was just a level of excess by the bourgeoisie. Those with the capital were inflicting this upon society and did so at the expense of the working class. This can be seen when looking at representations of queer people from the Soviet Union and other Eastern Bloc countries. The wealthy and effeminate man was looking to the poor man to exploit both financially and sexually. Within capitalistic societies, the blame was directed at the Marxists. Communists and communism was often equated with otherness, specifically Jewishness. Even today, almost two centuries after the publication of the Communist Manifesto by Karl Marx, many of those with right-wing sympathies are critical of progressive policies, that they immediately equate with the global elite, which is code for a Jewish cabal. George Soros' name is brought up almost as much as the word communist, and that is no accident. Those who are either from or whose ancestors hail from the global south are tarred with the same brush as Jews when it comes to these matters. It is strange that groups that are often the weakest from an economic perspective are categorized as being elite, but that it is necessary in order to have those who would racialize political, economic, or social justice movements create the narrative that it is, in fact, they that are under attack and not the other way around. Oli Hansen wrote in 1920 in Americanism versus Bolshevism, Bolshevism is against family life. Americanism stands for one wife and one country. Bolshevism stands for free love and no country. Queerness, like blackness, like Jewishness, and a whole host of other categorizations of humanity were and are still lumped together under an umbrella of deviancy. With increasing visibility with lesbians, gay men, and trans folk, not to mention other people of color, the imagined threat to a fantasy version of American domesticity, or for that matter German if we're discussing Nazism or Italian, if speaking of fascism, the list can go on, Grows, and so actions must be taken to curb the spread of this threat. While the Nazis in Germany did have an idea that men who had sex with men, they did not so much focus on lesbians and trans people in the same way, although that is not to say that these groups were not oppressed and locked up in camps or even sent to death camps. They were not done so explicitly for being lesbians or trans, however. Uh, but the idea that they could be altered through either psychological or medical intervention, their reasoning for seeing the situation as one that needed to be cured at all, showed their hand from the beginning. Science relies upon collecting evidence about the world, and then forming ideas about how the world works using the evidence. What either communist, Nazis, or even American conservative movements tend to use is an approach that assumes the conclusion that they want, and then finds evidence to support that conclusion, ignoring any evidence that is contradictory. It should come as no surprise, then, that the writings and data that had been collected by people like Magnus Hirschfeld were destroyed by Nazis. In the Soviet bloc, research that concluded that queerness was not a fault could be easily brushed aside as being propaganda of the capitalist elites. Even now, despite all the evidence and recommendations of medical boards, psychologists, and others who have diligently researched the issues, the facts and best practices are ignored or attacked by anti-queer or racist elements within the society, and their explanations of the researches are being used to pad their wallets, or again, that George Soros and the evil international cabal of elites are trying to destroy the family, the society, and the world at large. Yeah, all that all that mess is being discussed, unironically. In the United Kingdom, gay and bisexual men would be either sent to prison, if caught, or be given the choice of having chemical castration, if they were charged with homosexuality. The reason given was that it would help these poor men to control their revolting desires. It did not hurt that even if they were to see the light and embrace heterosexuality, those dirty genes would not go on to infect future generations. Queerness was treated the same as blackness or mental health issues or being Native American in the United States. Germany, under the Nazi regime, took these ideas and ran them. They saw how the Native Americans were treated in the United States, or how Jim Crow had created parallel versions of the American South, and the quackery that was being practiced by less than reputable psychologists, whether through lobotomies or castration. And, you know, they concluded that with all the undesirable elements in their borders, they would need to work fast to create their idealized Third Reich. There is a saying that I've said for years now. Every community has an Uncle Tom. Now, I'm not sure if I came up with that, or if I adopted the saying from a friend or clever author, but nonetheless, it's something that I truly see as I watch the battles that happen along cultural lines, whether in the United States in 2023, Germany in 1938, or wherever or whenever you like to examine. Perhaps it's better for us to use Uncle Ruckus. For those who may be unfamiliar with the term Uncle Tom, it is one that describes a black person who is obsequious and almost comically deferential to white people, often to the detriment of their own people. It is a perfect little term to describe that sort of person who won't hesitate to throw those who are like themselves under the bus in the hopes that they might someday, if they're good enough, get a seat at the table. And now I have to mention Caitlyn Jenner. <laughs> With her statements that she has made towards trans folks, it is blatantly hypocritical. But she is by far and away not the only one guilty of being an Uncle Tom. Individuals like Ernst Röhm in uh, Nazi Germany, the man who ran the essay, a gay man, was a useful Uncle Tom for Adolf Hitler until he wasn't. Dave Rubin is a contemporary example of someone who does not mind throwing his own community under that bus, but then acts surprise when the community that he's trying to uphold and become a part of does not accept him. He is a conservative American political commentator who, at the moment, is struggling with his fandom as he and his husband are having a child via surrogacy. His fandom tends not to be the biggest uh, supporters of gay parents, so he would be an Uncle Tom to the gay community. Anyhow, I could go on listing examples of Uncle Toms, but suffice it to say these people are useful and have always been useful for the elements that are endeavoring to eliminate undesirable people from their society. A homophobic gay man, for instance, uh, is someone that right-wing elements can point to as a good one, just as they do with Candace Owens as regards black people. These people can be used best to prove that the Nazis, or whatever group that are using them, are not just a collection of bigots and racists. How can they be racist if they have a black friend? a gay friend, a trans friend, or whatever. It gives them plausible deniability so that they can continue to pursue their aims to, quote, purify society, end quote. Whether it is by arresting degenerate people or holding hands with a member of the same sex or wearing clothing that just doesn't appear to match their gender that was assigned at birth, the attempts to weed out these elements from society often starts small but then escalates. Nazi Germany did not jump to Treblinka-style extermination camps overnight. So, too, in the United States, and current moral panic over queer people, it starts small with bathroom bills, but soon leads to more deadly situations where children may be put in danger if their parents are informed of their queerness, for example. And so, theoretically, there are even more deadly measures that could happen, and I would hate to speculate on the direction that anti-trans, anti-black, or anti-gay hysteria may go. The science used to discriminate is often limited to what is found in a fifth-grade textbook, but the means used to purify the nation and the race often uses a combination of Reformation's era torture mentality with state-of-the-art technology. It is a horrifying train of thought to follow, but it's not a new one. The atrocities of the concentration camps, the Indian boarding schools, and other acts of genocide all appealed to science as some kind of secular deity to sanction horrors in the manner that the witch trials appealed to Jesus to clear the consciences of those lighting the accused women afire. Science is not a god. It does not have the power to function as a moral arbiter outside of finding facts. It is what we do with the facts as human beings that is in question. Do we tell a child with severe gender dysmorphia that she cannot have her hormone replacement because communism? Or do we listen to the experts who did the research often over several generations? Do we Approach people who appear strange to us with compassion or contempt. Scientific research has actually found quite a bit of interesting information over the past century or so, despite the social construct of there only being two sexes. The reality is that sex in humans and other mammals is a spectrum. While examining chromosomes, it's not just XX and XY but XXY, XXYY, and so on. It's a cornucopia variety. Women can be born with XY chromosomes, and so on. The sheer variety of humanity that has been discovered via actual scientific research punches holes in the notions that sex is a binary. The brains of trans men, for example, look an awful lot, like the brains of cis men, and trans women likewise have brains that look very similar to cis women. It is almost as though the people who've been claiming to be transgender, homosexuality or otherwise, were right all along in saying that they knew themselves and that they were valid. I know that with this episode I focused a great deal on the United States, Britain, and Germany, but these biological deterministic ideas are Pretty viral. Every nook and cranny of this blue-green planet has some idea either at center stage or waiting in the wings for their moment to step into the spotlight. Comparing Moms for Liberty or the Proud Boys to the Nazi Party or the SA are not necessarily being hyperbolic. It is inherent in the core philosophy of these groups. The idea that people who are different are inferior and dangerous is itself dangerous idea. Looking back at the historical record, one would be hard-pressed to find an instance when anti-Semitism, transphobia, racism, or other forms of bigotry were a net positive to society. We look back at the witch trials in Europe and the early colonies in the United States with horror and disgust for a good reason, killing thousands of people because of a perceived supernatural threat turns out to be a pretty awful idea. The film footage of liberating death camps in Poland and Germany are hard to look at because of how brutal it reveals the society who created and operated them were. The current fear of teaching the true history of slavery or Native American genocides or whatever out of the concern that the student might get upset by the horrors that occurred is severely missing the point. We have to learn of these terrible events in the hopes that we will notice when similar situations arise again. As I said before, if these elements are not center stage, then they are backstage, and they're just waiting. It takes vigilance to spot legitimate evil. It then takes action to prevent that evil from putting a civilizing mask on and wrapping itself in robes of patriotism, faith, and scientific truth. I hope that we can see the backs of those who espouse this kind of vitriol very soon. Now, this episode may be a little bit all over the place, but it's it's a topic I've wanted to discuss for some time now. The lines of reasoning that are currently being used against the transgender community are not even eerily similar to those used against gays and lesbians a few decades ago, they are verbatim the same arguments. The hatred towards same-sex marriage pulled the same exact talking points that were used against interracial marriage a few decades ago. Again and again. While history may not exactly repeat itself, it's rhyming a little bit too much for comfort. Biology is not as Permaning a factor as some would have us believe. Chromosomes and genes are not carved in stone, and neither are we as human beings. The human experience is more akin to the stripes of a zebra, each one having a unique pattern. There will never be another me, or you, or anyone else. And that should be celebrated rather than denigrated. I hope that this episode's Diving into biological determinism and eugenics can give all who listen to it some comfort. Knowing that nothing is new under the sun and that it's always darkest before the dawn, while pretty words, are nonetheless true statements. Staying vigilant but also living in hope is the only way to improve our human condition. We that are alive now will not see that day when bigotry is a distant memory, but... We all have the power to, in ways both large and small, to push it centimeter by centimeter into the past. So what did you think? Did this episode enlighten you or cause you to close your eyelids and catch up on some much-needed sleep? Let me know by sending an email to thehistorymostqueer at gmail.com or come visit the Instagram page. I would love to hear from you. Do you have questions that you might want me to research and talk about? If so, shoot off an email. I think it might be fun to have an episode that's solely devoted to listener questions. Anyhow, until next week, I hope that you are all enjoying the last remaining days of summer. Autumn is coming, and again, for my part, it cannot come fast enough. This global warming thing is for the birds. I look forward to seeing you all again next week. Bye-bye.